three, two, one. You're live. We are live. Doug Minahal, thanks for being the guest today on uh, official title. Big groundbreaking news. Ryan, you want to spill it? The Hunt for Success podcast. That's our official name. Um, I would show you our notes, but we don't have a big enough whiteboard here on our brainstorming session to come up with that name. Uh, we are back at the Wendell Museum of Animal Conservation. Uh, today is Cinco de Mayo. Uh, Doug, I don't think you're a big drinker, are you? No. I, really. I brought margaritas. Okay. So if you want one, <laughs> they're there. If not, there's water. So uh, Doug and I go back about five years, maybe, maybe a little maybe bit further. Yeah. Uh, we started working at the same mortgage company. Doug's a mortgage advisor with Finance of America Mortgage uh, at our Clackamas branch. Yep. And uh, we were both there as uh, loan originators together. Um, so I have a list of uh, things that I think you are, and you tell me if they're correct. Okay. Author. Yes. Speaker? Yes. Paperboy? Yes. <laughs> uh, office supply employee? Yes. Singer-songwriter? Ooh, not that I know of. No. Ryan? Uh, consultant? Yes. Mortgage advisor? Yes. What did I leave out? Father. <laughs> Basketball coach. Uh, about, about wrap her up. Okay. And uh, uh, how many kids do you have? Two. Two boys. And what age? Uh, 21 and 18 right now. So uh, both out of the house? 18-year-old's senior in high school. Okay. So a few more months. Um, so a lot of people would look at this list and say, that's a lot of achievements. So I've got two topics I want to talk about right off the bat. Um, one, why are you still working? Why are you still speaking? Why are you still originating mortgages? And two, I'll let you answer both at the same time. Okay. Two is um, one of our favorite uh, shows and podcast hosts is uh, Steve Stephen Ranella, and he has a podcast called uh, The Meat Eater, and he's got a show. It's a hunting show. It's on uh, Netflix and uh, the Outdoor Channel, right? And he was doing a show um, where he was bear hunting in Montana. And uh, he was sitting in this one spot looking at over this uh, clear cut. And he started getting a little sentimental because this is where he grew up hunting with his brother in their 20s. And uh, um, he's looking over this landscape and he says, you know, I've changed so much in the last 10 years, but this landscape has stayed the same. The same type of animals are here. Nothing, time hasn't touched this place. And then he started talking about 10 years prior, he would have never imagined in a million years that he would be where he is today. And then he's looking 10 years ahead. And he said, I'm going to look back 10 years from now and go, how did I get here? I can't believe where I am. So uh, 10 years ago, did you picture yourself where you're at? So those are my two questions. Okay. Go. Um, I would say, so your, I'll do them in reverse. So your second question, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have pictured where I'm at. Um, 10 years ago, I just, I, I had retired a little bit young, semi-retired, and wrote my book, and was loving that, writing the book, speaking about the book, felt like it was a really important topic for people to know about. And then I had a lot of people ask me, well, how'd you retire so young? And can you teach me to do that? And I started 
lending them my money to buy real estate. And I got to the point where I didn't want to lend any more of my money. And at the same route, about that time, I ran into a guy I played softball with for four years who was a good friend of mine, but we had no idea what we did for work because we just played softball. And I randomly ran into him on a sunny day of the street and I said, hey, Steve, what do you do? And he said, I'm in the mortgage business. You would love this business. And it happened at the same time when I was like, to the point where I loved helping people buy real estate, but I didn't want to use any more of my money. And I found out there was this unlimited supply of money and I thought, perfect timing. And I got in the mortgage business really just to keep doing what I liked doing. So were you doing like hard money loans for people? Well, just my, yeah, my own private money. Yeah, I didn't consider it hard money at the time. I just considered kind of lending them money to get into houses so they could buy them. And then they'd either finance me out or sometimes they carried the loans a little bit longer term. And was this, was this was like fix and flip or rentals, I would assume? Or it's even buy and hold where they could, they just wanted to get it quickly. And then they'd either finance me out six months, a year, two years later. So most of my loans were one to, th- you know, zero to three years, something like that. And was this prior to the mortgage collapse? Yes. Yeah, because I actually got into the mortgage business, I think, in the summer of 06, which was just like right before the mortgage collapse. So you dodged a huge bullet. Well, I got in right when the bullet happened, right? <laughs> so you got in in 2006. Yeah. Started, do- started doing... Yeah, got in and then it went, you know, everything collapsed and I didn't know any better. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. But you, were, you weren't affected with your lending? No, because I didn't money. really need... You know, I was in a fortunate position where I didn't have any... I didn't really have a business going yet, so I you didn't can, really wasn't affected. You can push that mic back if okay. you need to, if you need to get a little closer. Okay. It's, it's fully adjustable. Great. Um, so how did you get to that point? You're at a point now where you have enough funds available where you can start lending it out. Um, how did you get to that point? So my background was I grew up, like you said, as a paper boy, learned a lot, and actually got shamed out of that job. I loved that job. I wasn't going to ever quit. And I got to an age where it was no longer acceptable to be that old and be a paper boy. And how how old was that? Ninth grade. So you're supposed to leave being a paper boy in eighth grade. And I kept doing it because I loved it and kind of got to the point where people were like, you shouldn't be a paper boy anymore. You're in ninth grade. Holy cow, how old are you when you're a paper boy? which seems funny to me now because it seems funny that you could get shamed out of a job for age at ninth grade, which was 14 years old. But that's really what happened. And I loved it. And I wouldn't have quit had that not happened. And then I went to work for my dad in office supplies and throw through those two experiences, just learned a lot, interestingly enough, about business that applies to adult business. And then I went into um, what I'd call business strategy and working with Fortune 100 companies primarily Saw a lot of different companies, a lot of different executive teams, a lot of different strategies, a lot of things that worked, a lot of things that didn't work, a lot of things I thought should work that didn't work, and was always curious why things didn't work that I thought would work, why things worked that I wasn't sure would work, and just kept notes, made comments, thoughts, and slowly over time developed points of view. And after doing that for probably about 10 years, I started my first company, and I started a wireless company. And it was a very exciting time. Our first company, we went venture capital right off the bat with that company. Um, we got written up at the time at one of the most exciting magazines, Red Herring Magazine, which I'm not sure if that's still around, but it was the magazine in the late 90s. And they wrote us as one of 10 companies to watch for the year we'd started. So we were 
feeling like rock stars and uh, we did very well from the beginning. We had a big name board member and then um, 2001, we would have been a B round company and only one C round company got funded that year and we did not and so we shut the doors and I had done well. What does that mean, B company and C company? Well, when you raise venture capital, your very first raise is you're an A-round company, right? So you're, you're either an angel company where private individuals start you up, and that's your A-round. And then your second round is your B-round, and your third round is your C-round. So by the time you get to your third round and your C-round company, you're more mature, you're further along, and your path to profitability is a lot closer. Usually companies become profitable somewhere around their D-round, right? So... A C-round company, you're coming in as an investor with pretty close distance to making profit, so it's a good time to come in. But the company's worth a lot more then, so you're, you're not taking as much risk, but you're also not getting as much return. So as an A-round company, is the biggest risk, and that's where we were. And then we were Like going a for shark our, tank type of company. Ex- exactly. Right? Yeah. And then we were going for our B-round, which was um, you know, our second round of funding to get to the next stage. And then we probably would have been a C-round company, and then we probably would have been looking to go public at that point. So that was kind of our path, A, B, C, and then public. And so we didn't get through the B-round. We were one of two companies right before the complete meltdown that were on the docket of one venture capitalist to fund us, and it came close but didn't do it, and we had to shut the doors. And then I... Helped a a buddy with a company he was trying to turn around, and then I retired at that point and said, I'm just going to, I didn't have to work anymore. I was going to take some time off. I'd invested well over my prior 12 years and wrote my book, traveled, interviewed. So the company you started, was that after you were doing the consulting? Yes. Did you find that uh, when when you didn't get that final funding, Looking back on it now, it's maybe probably a blessing in disguise at the time. Was that a big blow? How did you take that? Well, at the time, we were bummed because we'd poured our heart and soul into that company for two and a half years, and so we really wanted to see it to the end, and we believed in it. It was, it was called, the company was called Cerulic, and it was based off Bluetooth technology, which was cutting edge at the time. And we had some pretty interesting ideas that I think are still interesting that still are not out um, here 17 years later. And so I think they would have been cool. So it's never happened. Um, So we were very disappointed, but we also were very aware of what was going on in the market. And so we weren't that disappointed because we felt like odds at that point were pretty slim that we would have gotten that funding. And so we left with our heads held high that we did everything we possibly could. We felt bad for our A-round investors because at that point they lose everything. You know, there's nothing left. The doors close. Their investments for not. They don't get any return. So that was probably the hardest thing was I loved my A-round investors. They believed in us from the get, and we felt like we owed them, and we had to shut the doors and give them nothing. And that was that was the biggest disappointment was letting them down because we felt like we'd done everything we could. There wasn't anything looking back that I would have done differently. And they all agreed. So, I mean, they, as much as anything like that can go down, they made us feel like we'd done everything we could and they didn't blame us. So it, it ended clean, but it was still a disappointment. Then it was a good time to take a break. It was a good time to take a break, relax, enjoy, um, re, re, 
gain. And then I was really excited about the concept of my book, the project, and what, uh, what the book was about was Spark. I wanted to find out. Did you notice I had a copyright? I was impressed. Yeah. Uh, did you take a good look at it? I just noticed this this morning. Uh, so I ordered that on Amazon because uh-huh. it's not published anymore. Is that is it still in? It's it still being. Published? It's still in on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can only find used copies, but uh, did you notice a sticker on the side? I was like, oh, I hope Doug doesn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> now I do. <laughs> did you notice this, right? No. It says Goodwill. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's when you started writing Spark, and and this is why I have you on the day is. Ryan and I both have seen Doug speak three or four times over the years just within our company. And every time I always take away a couple of things, and then every time I walk away more confused about some things. <laughs> so uh, one, uh, we wouldn't be doing this podcast if it wasn't for your message in, in your last presentation, um, when to think and when to act. And I think that uh, uh, we've talked about this before, but Ryan really pushed me hard to do this. I was doing a, a small presentation for our office about call reluctance. And one of the examples I used was inaction, right? I got all these great ideas, but uh, I'm more than welcome to talk about them and write them down, but I'm scared of implementing them. I'm scared of failure, scared of embarrassment, rejection. So they just sit. And so uh, Ryan likes to remind me that this podcast has been an idea of mine since I, we actually looked it up in my notes since September of 2015. And so in this meeting, I was giving examples of inaction, and Ryan called me out in front of everybody and said, like your podcast. And, uh, and so uh, uh, we went to Sales Rally. We heard you speak, and then um, I turned to the person next to me during one of the breaks. It was Katie Parsons, and I said, would you like to be my first guest on the podcast on... April 26. So I put the date on the calendar and then we got back and had to do all this. So That's awesome. Um, so dive into a little bit about your book. I had a question. Um, 10 secrets to living a life you love. Do you, do you love your life right now? I do. I think that really comes across when people get to know you or just are around you for the first time. Uh, our job as mortgage originators can be very hectic and very stressful. You always are calm. You're always smiling. You're always present in the moment. And up until recently, you worked off a flip phone. (laughs) So I I, I just want to speak to that really quickly. So I didn't know Doug all that well. Um, I want to say it was Sales Mastery 2000, maybe 13 or so. And I sat next to Doug during half of the day's presentations. And he's literally closing big volume you know, he's, he's top in the industry and I look over and he's got a flip phone and, you know, and I'm scrambling with emails on my phone to, you know, to, 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 to work on the handful of deals that I had at the time. And, and Doug's just so calm and cool. And I'm like, how is this guy doing it? And it, and so that was like my first impression of like, just on top of everything and, and not, you know, not even like on the top of technology. (laughs) Yeah, so when I saw the book came in from Amazon, I said, 10 Secrets to Living a Life You Love, and I immediately thought, that's Duck. Hmm. So has it always been that way? I, I don't think so. I think I grew up 
in a very fortunate situation. My had a good family, had a good upbringing, had lots of people around me. That we had a good family environment, easy life to grow up. But you know, like any kid, had the issues and you know, probably I'd say a fairly normal childhood. What hit me with the book was as I became a parent and I saw my kids when they were really young, all of their friends had what I would call spark and they loved their life without exception. And then as they started to get older, I noticed that wasn't the case. And as the older they got, the fewer and fewer kids I saw that seemed to love their life. There was more disappointment, confusion, frustration, and, and you saw kids become more distant and you, when you'd known them when they were young, you're like, I wonder what happened to them. And so for me, Spark originally was a mission to help my kids not lose their Spark. I didn't want them to lose it. And I wanted to find out why did people lose their Spark? Could they get it back? What age did they start losing it? And if people had Spark, could they get more Spark? And that was kind of my mission. And it was purely driven to help my kids not lose their Spark. And then if anything else came out of it, it was a bonus. And so... I started the process interviewing people that were adults that were told to me as having great spark, and then I'd end the interview with who's the one person you know that has the most spark of anybody you know. And it led me around the world. And I interviewed 300 people with spark all over the world. Wow. And as interesting as I entered 300 adults that had lost their spark all over the world. So I had 300 that held, held their spark as adults and 300 lost their spark. And I had this big brown paper in my um, living room, and I would just put notes all over, and then I'd reorganize them and try to come up with themes. And I boiled it down to the t what I called the 10 secrets of living a life you love. I felt like there were 10 themes to keeping your spark, regaining it, getting more of it, and, th and that was the book. And then I've been talking to my kids and their friends about it since they were young, and it's kind of fun for me now, like some of their friends, we've been talking about this since 2005, They'll get into my car now as young, young adults and say, hey, Mr. Mendenhall, how's your spark? And it's just a conversation we have, the conversation of spark. What are you doing to keep your spark? How are you doing? How's your day going? What, what happened today? How did you keep your spark when that happened? And it, um, I feel like they've grown up inside the conversation, so they're armed for the world, and it's at least a concept for them. So are, with the word spark, are you talking about like them recognizing where their attitude is? Is that? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I get asked this a few times. And when I, what I would say is when I first started the book, people would say, what is spark? And I didn't have a word for it. I had a gesture. And I'd say, you know, spark is that, you know. And I just kept going. I still somebody would nod and go, okay, I know what you're talking about. You know, when somebody has their spark. And they'd be like, okay, okay. And now, you know, probably 12 years later, what I would say spark is, is confidence. When somebody has their spark, they're confident their life is going to work out the way they want it to work out. It doesn't mean it's going the way they want it to go right now, but they're confident it will. They're confident that they can get it there. They're confident they'll figure it out. They're confident it'll turn around. They're confident it'll happen. They're confident what steps it will be required. That's what I would say spark is. And when people lose their confidence, they aren't sure how their life's going to turn out. They aren't sure where they're going to go. They're not going to sure where they're going to end up. They're not sure who their friends are going to be or how their friends will react. And, and that's a big distinction. I wouldn't have seen that at the beginning, but now I think that's the word I would use. Interesting. And Ryan and I both have kids 
uh, my daughter is, uh, she'll be five in June, and Ryder is seven. seven. And um, when they're young, they have no shame, right? They'll sing whatever song, and they'll do whatever. And then you, as they get older, you do start to see that change where all of a sudden they're embarrassed or they don't want to see, you don't want them, they don't want you in the bathroom or don't look at me. And, and so uh, is that kind of what you see as a trend and then yeah when i wrote the book and it was published in 2006 and it is available still on amazon from the author direct Good. just fyi okay um is but there's a lot of other people. that was the first official plug on right there's the on, on the, okay there we go Good. <laughs> i like it but when i first wrote the book people i would have said people were losing their spark about sixth grade and sadly now we're in about 11, 12 years later, I would say it's third grade, second grade. It keeps getting younger as kids get more exposed to what other people think. Especially social media. Social media is a part of that. And they're just getting more and more opinions of themselves. And that's when they start to lose their spark. And so one of the recipes for kids to retain their spark is to have a strategy like I say, there's always a strategy for everything, and there's a strategy for kids around Spark, is they need a strategy how to handle what other people think and what do they do with that. And that has a direct implication to the age at which they lose their Spark. And so I think that's just a really important conversation to have with kids is what's your strategy to deal with what other people think? Yeah, it's really interesting because my daughter had a friend over, a neighbor girl over last night and I, they were out front playing and I was listening and she was being kind of mean to this girl you know no I get the first turn right that kind of mean so I brought her inside I said you got to be nice to your friends if you want to be treated nice you got to treat them nice and then she kind of pouted and said I'm not nice at school I'm not nice at home I'm just never nice like felt bad about herself and I didn't know what to do so I just said well you just got to be nice to people but the after she went back outside, I'm like, I hope I just didn't screw her up to make her feel like she is unsatisfied, you know, un- unhappy or that she's a bad girl. And, and she's not. She is a really good girl. But uh, but yeah, as a parent, that's that was the first time I, I had to look myself in the mirror and go, do you have the skill? Like questioning my own skills as a parent. The, the, the best one that I was ever told, and I, I want to say it was by my grandmother. And she always would say, you can't you can't tell like your son or whoever that they're, they're bad. You're a bad boy because that'll just reinforce that they're not a nice person. And so whenever my son's acting out, I start out with, you're a good boy and you know, right from wrong, but you're not acting that way right now to reinforce to him that he knows right from wrong. He is a good kid. He's just not demonstrating that at the moment. And so I, always go back there every single time that that what she said to me just resonates every Mm. single time so you don't drive home that you're a bad person because he's not but he's just not acting properly right now we need to correct that (laughs) that's great it's almost like emotional intelligence for four-year-olds right well and i think you both bring up something really interesting which is you know if we try on the notion that spark is confidence and if a child feels the need to put down another kid or insist this way or that way, I start to see that more as a lack of confidence. If they were confident, they wouldn't need to put down the other kid. If 
they were confident they wouldn't need to be first in your example. They'd be fine with being second, so it doesn't mean anything about them, right? And it's that, that question of their confidence that has them behave in ways that we might say aren't spark-worthy or aren't. So how do you communicate that to somebody at four or five years old that doesn't really understand? Like, you could, I, you could tell me that, and I say, oh, that makes total sense, but I'm 36. I, I think kids are remarkably intelligent. And I would say a kid will get this conversation. See, what was fun about the book, my process was I interviewed these adults, right? And then once I came up with the themes, I wanted to find out what age. So to do that, I had to go teach in schools. And so I reached out to schools and said, hey, can I be a guest teacher for a day or two days? And several schools took me up on that, and I got to go teach kids as an untrained teacher. And really our whole conversation was around Spark. And I was at Catlin Gable School here in Portland, and I, I'll never forget it. We'd been talking about Spark, and this class was really fun. And the Catlin Gable kids are pretty, you know, they're trained about a lot of things. So they're a pretty exemplary group of kids. And on the second day, I asked the class, I said, so why do you think people lose their Spark? And there was this one girl in the back who had been paying particularly close attention to the conversation the last two days, and she raised her hand as high as you could raise your hand, and she was just like, ooh, ooh. But she was polite. She was going to wait for me to call on her. And we'd been having fun, so I waited. And I said, does anybody know when you start to lose your spark and why? And she's like, ooh, 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 ooh. And I was like, nobody has any ideas. And she was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And the rest of the class was just thoughtful and thinking about it, but she knew. And I knew she knew. And you could tell she knew. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. She was so sure. And... Finally, I, I stopped being mean, and I just said, why do you think people lose their spark? And she goes, oh, it's obvious. You know, and at this point, I had been researching this for about six years, and I was like, wow, where were you six years ago? <laughs> but she knew. She goes, oh, it's obvious. It's when people start to worry about what other people think. Wow. And it just made so much sense, and I was just like, God, I think that's it. And, and that, unfortunately for us, that's happening at a younger and younger age, and kids are so exposed to so many things so young that I, I think it's amazing the level of adult conversations that a four-year-old can have. What I would typically consider, that's a pretty heady topic, and they can have it. And so I think, you know, it'd be interesting to play with, but I think kids will get this idea of confidence, and you're either confident or you're not. And if you're not confident, your behavior may not be your best. And, you know, a lot of adults I talk to about confidence say, well, you can be too confident. And I don't really believe that. I believe that you're either confident or you're not. And most of the traits of somebody being too confident aren't confident traits. They're actually not confident traits. And so when somebody's too confident, it's really they're not confident. It's like they're trying to overcompensate for something. Yeah, and when you're confident, you're, you're just calm. You're just aware that everything could work out. It doesn't mean you know everything. It doesn't mean you have any idea where you're going you just you just know it'll work out you'll figure it out it'll it'll come to you at some point and I think you know when you see kids that are confident they're they're out taking risks they're out introducing themselves to people they don't know they're out trying things they've never done before and if it doesn't work out they keep trying it's when they stop trying that they've lost their confidence and they don't want to try anymore and you see it in adults now and, you know, I'm always saying, you know, the key to life 
is take risks and be confident. Risks will have you learn in areas you don't know, and even areas you don't know you don't know. And confidence will get you into a place where you'll take those risks. And um, I don't see a lot of discussion about confidence in the world. You know, I always joke and when I'm talking, I say how many people have taken Confidence 101 at the university level. People laugh. Anybody take Confidence 102, 103? It just isn't, isn't taught. And I think it potentially is one of the most unstudied areas that is, has the most impact on people's lives. Well, and it seems like now in 2017, you're constantly being told uh, that other people can offend you, other people can hurt you, you need to watch what you say, you need to not polarize yourself. And, I mean, you watch the news for 10 minutes, and it's all about what somebody said or what they didn't say, caught on tape, or this politician said this. So I'm always, Ryan and I work really close together in the office, and I'm always worried about slipping and saying the wrong thing. I shook, uh, this was a joke today at the office, but I shook uh, uh, our processor's hand the other day. And I shook it. I was always taught when you shake a woman's hand, you shake it like that, mm -hmm. right? And she goes, oh, you cannot do that. You're going to upset somebody. You short-armed me. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I, that, compared to shaking a man's hand where you shake it like that, right? right? It was just the way I was raised, and I've always done it that way. And then, so for the last couple of days, I've been paranoid about it. So... It, it, my confidence in my handshaking abilities has gone down. <laughs> so that was a great transition, though, to the uh, you got to work in the unknown and unknown. Um, and this is kind of what got us to put a date on the calendar and start this podcast, even though we don't know anything about how to do a podcast. Uh, so can you talk about that? Can you kind of describe your pie chart? Well, and this is something that I've seen, and a lot of people may have seen, but there's this concept that there's, you know what you know, you know what you don't know. But that's the smaller part of the pie chart. The bigger part of the pie chart is you don't know what you don't know. And the only access to the you don't know you don't know, since you don't know it, you can't get there, is taking risks. And then learning stuff that you didn't know you didn't know and go, oh, that's why I can't tell you how many times I thought something was going to go one way and I was sure it was going to go that way. Absolutely sure. And then it, I did it and it didn't go that way. And then that forced me to learn stuff I didn't know I didn't know. And it wasn't until I did it. See, that's why I'm, I'm, my new book that I'm writing right now is called Risk Takers versus Risk Talkers. And the reason for that book is risk talking is not risk-taking. Risk-talking has you learn nothing. But there's this perception that you're taking risk because you keep talking about it. But you're not. I think that's notorious in our industry, at least for me. Well, like unfortunately, it's notorious in life, I think. Yeah. I think it's just, it's, it's commonplace. I talk to a lot of people who are like, someday, someday, someday. And then their life's over and someday's no longer available. And so... This idea that risk-taking is, is monumental or big or is scary or is probably for people that don't take a lot of risks. I think if you take a lot of risks, risks are very little. They're insignificant. They're minor. And so the consequence is minor. When you find yourself facing a very big risk with dire, large consequences, it might be a sign that you don't take enough risks. 
and the odds of succeeding when you're facing a very large risk, I think, are very low. And so I think the skill is to continually take risks, take small risks over and over, over a great period of time, and then hopefully you'll never face a big risk. And so the consequences are minor. Kind of like an A-class venture capitalist. Exactly. Um, yeah, I wrote that pie chart down, and we look at it all the time. We talk about it all the time. Um, so I saw you speak two years prior to that at one of our company sales rallies. And afterwards, I came up to you, and I asked you a question, and you answered it. And to this day, I'm still confused about it. Okay. So <laughs> Reagan was uh, three years old at the time. And Carissa, my wife, and I were trying to figure out if we were going to have a second kid or not. And so I had, kind of like when you wrote your Spark book, I was trying to ask as many people that had an only child or had multiple kids what their thoughts were. And so I knew you had kids, so I asked you and uh, uh, another uh, one of our coworkers were there. And I said, uh, we're trying to figure out if we're going to have another kid or not. And you talked to me about choosing versus deciding and you took out two black business cards and you said pick a business card and so I picked one and you said why that why that one and I don't remember what I said some some silly reason and then you said no you're deciding choose and I still don't know what that means okay so I was so we decided we, we decided by the way to to not have a second kid but uh I felt like well I did was you so decide or did you choose so yeah. we need we need to figure that there out from go. Doug, like w- what it was. So I, uh, we all have little things and big things that we're trying to, to decide, and I felt like there was something I was missing about what you said. I just couldn't figure it out. Wow, no, that's great. So there's this training out there called Landmark Education, and one of their big talking points is, as human beings, we are fully versed in making decisions. We're really good at it. You'll be hard-pressed to meet somebody who's not good at making a decision. We're trained in it. We do it our whole lives. We know how to make a decision. However, unfortunately, we have no training, and we're not very good at making choices. And the distinction between the two is, is subtle but significant. And so when you make a decision, you're comparing multiple alternatives and ruling ones out, and you're left with the last man standing. So you made a decision because of this, this, and this. And so a decision is always because of something. Like a pros, cons list. Yep. I mean, I'm, choosing, I'm deciding this because of this. That's a decision. A choice, there's nothing that's based on. It's just a choice. And so it's powerful to have skill in both. I'm not saying making decisions isn't a valuable skill. I think it's very valuable. But I think there are times where a choice is more applicable than a decision and a lot of times as a human being we try to make everything a decision so we're facing a choice and we try to decide because i think that you noticed that i was getting hung up right i was getting hung up on what the right decision was right right well i think what i was seeing was you were facing a choice and you were trying to make a decision out of it i think they were two black business cards and he was staring at them trying to figure out what was different about them like why did he present me to the same business card? Am I missing something? And you're like, okay, you're deciding. You're not choosing. Had he just grabbed one of them, it would have just been a choice. Like if you would have just said, bam, and he so, just grabbed the first one that was in front of him. 
And if I asked him why, why did you choose that one? He would have said, I did. I just grabbed it. it. I chose it because I chose it. Then it's a choice. If you chose it because of something, it's a decision. I chose it because it was black. I chose it because it was thinner. I chose it because it was square and it wasn't dented on the corner. You know, all those things make it a decision. So you're facing the, the choice, in my opinion, of having another kid, right? Should I have another kid or should I not have another kid? And you're trying to decide, well, pros and cons. And what I was advocating is maybe it wasn't a decision. Maybe it was just a choice. Because I think at one point you did say, it sounds like you've already decided or you've already picked one. And so what's, what's really interesting, if you start to see the world in decisions and choices, is sometimes the most interesting choice isn't the first one. It's the one that's available after you made the first one. So in your case, here you're trying to decide or choose whether to have another kid or not. That may not be the most interesting point. The most interesting point be, might be, what do you do after you've made that choice? So if you make the choice, we're going to stay with one kid. Well, now you're faced with all sorts of other choices. Well, what are we going to do with that kid? What are, how are we going to raise that kid? How are we going to get them around other kids so they get the experience of having multiple friends or whatever since they don't have a sibling? Or conversely, if you say we're going to have two kids, then the next choices are, well, what do we want to do with those two kids? Do we want them in the same room? Do we want them in separate rooms? Do, you know, do we want them to go to the same school? Do we want to raise them the same? Do we, all those choices come downstream. And so the, the thing that I learned in the, the training we took was there is a difference between choosing and deciding. They're both valuable, but mastering when to choose is very valuable. And then once you make a choice, all sorts of other choices are available. And until you make a choice, those choices aren't available and they start to build up. And I always jokingly call that choice constipation. They just back up and back up and you just, it's until you make it and then they all come flooding out. Right, and you've got a, a bunch more to make. The choosing, <clears throat> the choosing feels kind of like risk taking in a yeah, way. Yeah, it, no, it, you know, just 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 kind of like taking that leap of faith and saying, "I'm I'm not going to sit here and overanalyze this. I'm not going to get in my own way. Like I'm just going to do it, and then let's see where it goes." Right, and it was I almost it a lack of confidence because you were right. We had leaned towards not having another kid. And you, I think, maybe saw that. It sounds like you've already made up your mind. So you just need to be confident in that decision. Well, and, and that what's, what's great about that, so I spent 10 years consulting with companies. And I went into a lot of different companies, met a lot of different executive teams. We'd interview a lot of people. And when you interview people, they give you answers. And a lot of times, as a consultant, you go in and say, what do you think is wrong with the company? And people will give you answers, and you'll take notes, and you'll say, okay, good, good. And then you usually you'll end your interview, and you'll think about the notes. And you'll think about what the problems are facing, what they told you. You'll summarize your notes. In general, you'll come back to the company, and you'll say, here's what I think you should do. And the company and the people in the company oftentimes will see your recommendation like you provided them something very insightful. Like, wow, how would you come up with that? How'd you know that that's what we should do? Where'd you get this? And, and what is ironic about it is they told you exactly what they should do. And you, being uncaught up in all the stuff in the company, look at it, logically assess it and go, they're right. They should do exactly what they know to do. 
And when they tell you, they tell you from unconfident voice, they don't even hear themselves telling you. And when you tell them back, as the consultant, you tell them with confident voice, here's what you should do. And they hear it, and it sounds like new news. And it happened almost every time. And I was just baffled by it, going, gosh, so let me get this straight. They pay me to come in, ask them questions about what they should do. I take notes. I summarize what they should, what they should do, tell them back. And they're thrilled to death because it sounds like they never thought of it in the first place. And, and what was missing in almost every case was they weren't confident about what to do. And when somebody else came in from a neutral outside source and said, you should do this, they were like, okay. And it resonated with them because somewhere deep inside they knew that's what they should do. Yeah. So um, choosing, deciding... That sounds like a skill that we all are constantly working on, and, and now makes very clear. Does that make more sense? It, yeah. it does make a lot more Hoping sense. After all these years that I got you, gave you better answer well, than I, would, I did. I was the first just time. like, what are the two business cards? They were the same business cards. <laughs> but I, I, now looking back, we had already made up our mind. I just wasn't confident about it, and I needed somebody else to say, "Well, we only had one kid, and it worked out great." Mm. Um, so when do you, when, how do you know when to decide and when to make a decision? Cause like the podcast is easy. There's no risk there. Right. So yeah, let's just do it. Let's try it. There's definitely risk. All the, all the risks for the reason why you hadn't done it yet. Failure, embarrassment. Embarrassment was a huge one. All this equipment for nothing. Yeah. You know, stored. In the garage, looking well, at you every day, saying... Amazon does have a really <coughs> good 30-day return oh, policy. Do. Gotcha. So you'd minimize that risk. <laughs> yeah, I'd minimize that risk. I, I think, you know, again, now that you've taken this risk and you've seen how it worked out and you're like, okay, it might propel you into other risks. And, and that's what I was trying to get at with small risks. Because as you sit back now and logically look at starting the podcast, it seems like it wasn't that big a risk. And as I hear you talk, you're like, yeah, it really wasn't that big a risk. But before you did it, it felt like a big risk. And so I think the more risks we take, the more we get into a risk-taking mentality, the more things we throw out there and we learn from, and the quicker we iterate. Because think of it like this. Let's say you take one risk a year. Odds are any risk on its own isn't going to be the magic risk. Right. Usually, I always tell people your fifth risk in an area is more likely to be successful than your first. So your goal isn't to make your first one perfect, because you only know what you know. Your goal is to get to your fifth risk as fast as possible. Because if my time between my first risk and my second risk is a long time, that feels like a really big failure. If I take a risk this morning and this afternoon I take a second risk in the same area, it doesn't even feel like a failure. It feels like an iteration. Feels like, oh, I did iteration one. This afternoon I did iteration two. Tonight I'll do iteration three. Tomorrow morning I'll do iteration four. By tomorrow afternoon I'll be on iteration five. I'll probably have it somewhat figured out by then. And that doesn't feel like failure. So the speed with which you take risk, I think, has a direct correlation to our sense of was that a failure or just an iteration? Well, and that makes me think right away the, the story about the O.J. Simpson case. And maybe you can talk about it, but in your story, they're taking one risk a day and they get to a certain point where they're willing to try almost anything. 
Yeah. Well, that, that story was just the story of two authors, and their whole strategy was to take five risks a day to launch their book. And to my knowledge, they're the ones who have gone from nobody to bestseller the fastest of anybody before and anybody since. And the magic of what they did was they took five risks a day to launch their book. And that is pretty unprecedented in our world for any company, any group to take five risks a day, every day, all the time, without fail. And the learning and the speed at which you go when you take that many risks is phenomenal. And, and I would add this, you know, when I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of executive teams, work with a lot of different people, see a lot of different companies. And I've never shown up to one of those meetings and looked around and thought, oh, holy cow, people in this room aren't smart enough to run the company. It's never happened. Everybody I meet is intelligent, very well qualified, can do, but most of the time they aren't succeeding. And the reason isn't because they're not smart enough. The reason is they've lost their confidence and so they aren't taking enough risks and so they aren't learning fast enough and so they're stuck. And my dad always told me when I was younger, most people think when they shouldn't think and they've forgotten to think when they should think. And I was fortunate to learn some very early lessons on when thinking is really valuable and when thinking is paralyzing. And usually when you're facing a risk, thinking is not your friend. It's your enemy. And that's when people do a lot of thinking. Should I start the podcast? I don't know. Let me think about it. Not your friend. I launched the podcast. I'm not sure how it went. Thinking's your friend there. So it's after the risk that thinking's your friend, before the risk thinking's not your friend. I just want to touch back on, like, you just giving an example of your dad, you know, giving you amazing advice and going back to people maybe losing their confidence and having parents that give their kids the confidence to go out and succeed. And, um, like, you never want to tell a kid, like, no too much. Obviously, you don't want them to hurt themselves, so jumping off the roof is a terrible idea. Um, but you know, maybe somewhere in between that and jumping over a, a Lincoln log is okay. Um, but not taking the, the drive and the, the ambition and, and whatnot out of a kid by telling them no too much, like let them scrape up their knees, let them get dirty, let them, let them fail, let them figure things out. And it sounds like, and from stories that you've told, that's exactly what your dad did for you. You know, it's, it's a great comment. I'm glad you said that. What, and I remember when our first son was very young, we made a conscious effort to, instead of saying no, we, I don't think we ever said no. I say no about 30 times a day. Was to, uh, was, to, <laughs> was to suggest. So rather than say no, like, oh, don't do that, mm-hmm. we'd say, hey, why don't you come over and do this? And it was subtle, but... He never heard no. And what's interesting now as an adult, he's really not much of a rebel, never has been. Uh, And I'm not sure we did as good a job on our second child as doing that (laughs) as we did on our first. Our first, we were very conscious. Let's not say no, let's suggest. And so we replaced the no with a here. And it's interesting. I think there is some magic in that. And 
in providing guidance as opposed to stopping. Yeah. Well, and I was just uh, visiting my my brother-in-law and his wife, and they have a one-year-old, and we're sitting there at lunch, and they just kind of like broke up some of the food, dropped it in front of him, was like, you know, there, like, make your decisions. And then he's reaching over and grabs a handful of mom's food. And, and I'm kind of like, uh, like cringing. Like if it was me, I'd be like, no, this is my food. But they were just like kind of letting him, you know, they're letting him figure things out. Um, you know, and obviously different parenting styles. But when I left the lunch, I was like, you know what? That was really cool. He didn't throw a big fit. They didn't have to have a scene because he maybe grabbed a couple pieces of her salad. He got all of his food in. Um, so it was, it, it, you know, it's, it's just interesting. Well, and to kind of tie what Ryan's saying back to another thought I have is accountability partners. And in a way, what you just said is kind of the whole accountability partner with, with your kids, but I've never hear you talk about accountability partners a lot. And your example of the two authors that said, okay, let's do five risks a day do you think there's a lot of value in accountability partners? Do you, are you somebody that likes to have other people achieving these goals, a, a set of goals with you? Hmm. Um, like that example of if it was just one of those authors, would they have accomplished the five risks a day? That's a good, great question. Um, and one I am not prepared with, so I'm going to just kind of go off the All right. top of my head here. I think, um, you know, and kind of backing into our parent thing, I think there's really no right or wrong thing to do anything. And so maybe just from a pressure standpoint, even if you've told your no, your kid no 30 times, that's awesome. I think if you now choose to not do that, that's great too. I think no matter what happens, there's a strategy to make it go the way you want it to go. To, you know, I've always felt like sorry is the most magical word. Um, I've never found where I've apologized for something where it hasn't turned around. So even if I've taken a risk and it went poorly and I've offended somebody, upset them, pissed them off, if I have the courage to apologize, usually it almost is better than if I'd never offended them in the first place. And so, you know, like raising kids, if you screw it up one day, <laughs> you know, oops, sorry, kid. Tomorrow, today's a new day. Here's where we're going. I think you can fix anything. And so I'm always the optimist on that. And then I guess to get to your question about accountability, I think accountability is valuable if it keeps you in the game of taking risks and moving forward. And I think some people need that more than other people. Some people don't need it. And so I don't know that I have a strong opinion like you have to have accountability. Mm -hmm. I think everybody knows themselves. And if they're honest with themselves, they say, I would perform a lot better with accountability because that serves me well. And other people may just be naturally accountable and they don't really need it as much. I, I know people who are so accountable, the idea of accountability partner probably doesn't occur to them. Just, just going to get in their way. Yeah, they so, might slow them down. You know, they're just very accountable. Like they go after it and they make it happen. I know other people who love that and it's a great relationship. And so I don't think there's a right or wrong to it would be my first thought without spending a lot of time thinking about it, saying that either way works great. The key is to take risks, and however you do that is awesome. Did you want to dive into his dad at all in, in his early business years? Because I think that, hearing his story, I think that 
probably really helped that and being a paper boy, but really helped shaped who you became or who you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, uh, now that we've seen you speak a few times and just talked with you a few times, it's almost like Doug's greatest hits because we've heard these stories a couple times and <laughs> they keep getting better every time I hear them. So is, if it's okay, can we talk about some sure. of Doug's greatest sure, hits? Sure. Well, uh, when, you, when you start, let's, I love the paper boy story. Um, and uh, uh, I'm thinking about keywords I'm going to put in the YouTube search, right? Yep. And I'm, I, we hit risks is great. The next word I really want to talk about is compelling. Okay. Well, with the paper boy story, so I grew up as a paper boy. And what was fun is I talked about that at our last talk, and there were probably, I don't know, 300, I think they said there were 380 people there. I probably had 10 people come up to me afterward and go, I was a paper boy too. I was a paper girl too. I was a paper. And it's amazing how many people had that experience, and all of them felt similar about the experience. So I think there was something magic about being a paper person. Um, you're 11 years old, 10 years old. You're in charge of marketing, delivery, sales, collections, complaints. At 11 years old. And kind of to our point about our kids too young, I think there was something magic about having all of that responsibility at such a young age and learning those, however you were going to handle it at that age and dealing with it, set you up to where it was not a big deal. I'm just asking Ryan what time, it, how we're doing on time. Is that so, 15 or 51? 56. Perfect. Sorry. So... Here, you know, those of us who grew up, you know, I, my story with the paper was I was just given a rectangle. This is your plot of land. You sell as many newspapers in that plot of land. You collect the money in that plot of land. You make sure people are happy with getting the paper in that plot of land. And so at first, I made it a game to try to deliver that plot of land as fast as I could. And so I folded a certain way, I rubber banded a certain way, I stacked it in my cart a certain way, I adjusted my bike a certain way, I adjusted my throwing angle a certain way until I got it down. And I, you know, looking back, I would call those risks. I took a risk to tilt the cart. I took a risk to how I sat on my bike when I threw because I wanted to throw and get it right where it needed to go without having to get off the bike and go put it because that slowed you way down. And I wanted to get that paper route done fast so I could get on with playing. You know, I did sports, I did other things. So, you know, by the end, I got my paper route down to 27 minutes, and that was about as fast as I could do it. And that was a stack of papers, winding them up, putting them in, riding off to my rectangle, delivering the rectangle, and getting home. And that was really fast, because when I started, it was two and a half hours. And so there was a lot of learning just in playing with the delivery to get it perfect to where I was very efficient. And then what I learned along the way that I didn't, would never have thought of going in was back then I made a dollar per paper per month, which wasn't much money. But when I collected the money, I was collecting 8 to $9 per paper per month. If I personally collected it, I usually got a dollar to $2 tip per paper per month, which was double. And to collect all the papers I had in my route took me about four hours personally. So I was making about 10 times the amount of money collecting 
newspaper route money versus delivering newspaper route money. It occurred to me, I'm not really in the business of delivering newspapers. I'm in the business of collecting money for newspapers. That's where the juice was. And I started hitting up my other paper routes who hated the collecting part. And everyone else was just oblivious, right? Everybody they else probably just dreaded the four They hated hours, the collecting. Yeah. Well, they didn't do it. They just put the envelope in the paper once a month, threw it at the door, and hoped somebody put money in the envelope and mailed it back. And if they didn't, they'd put another envelope in the paper, throw it again until they paid it. And if they didn't pay it, they'd eventually call them or have the newspaper call them and say, you owe for your paper. They never got into the collection. So it was a problem for people. They didn't like it. They didn't want to deal with it. And once I figured out that was where the juice was, I offered out of the kindness of my heart to do the collections for my other fellow paper carriers. <laughs> they gladly said, please. And I gave them their dollar and I got their tips. And and it was a great business. And I was like, wow, I'm really not in the business of delivering. I'm in the business of collecting. They were happy. I was happy. And then it just never occurred to people that there was money to be made in collection. Um, so I learned, I guess at that age, that sometimes what you think you're doing isn't really where the benefit of what you're doing. And so what the consumers got when I collected was they got somebody to talk to. They got somebody to, to correspond with. And some people that... I might have been one of the few people they corresponded with each day, and so it meant a lot to them. And then as I got bolder and started playing with more risks, I would tell people that weren't taking the newspaper, like I would tell them the news as I was writing by, hey, did you hear about the Blazers today? You should get the paper. It's got a great article on it. And, you know, they might laugh. And you know, after five or ten times of me telling the news, hey, did you see what the Russians were doing? This, you know, It's amazing. I can't believe this. And I'd say some pretty... Um, world order things for an 11 year old and they were kind of tickled by that and eventually I usually got people who didn't take the paper to take the paper and so I took my rectangle and I got it full and so I think I started with 51 papers when I started my route and I think by the time I ended I was at 117 papers so wow. I almost doubled it and you know it didn't take me much more time to do 117 papers than it did to do 51 and then I got to collect those papers. And so from a dollar per hour, I was making a lot more money doing it that way. And I was just learning how, you know, what matters in business and how to take advantage and be more efficient. Did, and did you realize that at the time? Did you realize, hey, I'm learning how to run a business. I'm learning how to get better. I'm learning how to take risks. Or were you just trying to get as much money as possible? I, I wasn't so conscious to say I'm learning business. I was just... I was conscious that collecting money was more profitable than delivering the newspapers. I did know that, and I was like, wow, I should do more collecting and less delivering. That's probably, that would be great. I was conscious that getting more papers on my route was beneficial, but I almost, that was more fun for me. I just wanted to see, could I do it? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't so money motivated. I just wanted to know, could I get these people who aren't taking the newspaper to start taking the newspaper? It was kind of a game, like, almost like a social experiment, like, Hunter, what would it take for them to want to take the newspaper? And, and as that started happening, I kept playing games till I learned. And so I had four years of delivering the newspaper. And I always tell people I was shamed out of it because the last year I was too old at the ripe age of 14 to be a newspaper person. You weren't supposed to be that old and deliver the newspaper. So I left reluctantly. I really didn't want to quit being a newspaper. But I, people were kind of like, mm, it's, time. Old. it's time, you're kind of old. Yeah. Uh, which is weird because I was a paper boy, uh, but it was more of a high school thing. 
So you were older. I was older. I was in, I was a freshman, sophomore, and junior in high school. See, we, maybe we paved the way for you. You must have paved it was the way. Cooler to be older, to be a paper boy. And because <laughs> now they're like forty years old delivering the paper, so somehow along yeah, the way it's gotten older and older. Like I don't older. think there are young kids delivering newspapers no. anymore. Well, in my neighborhood, the paper guy comes when I'm leaving to go work out at four thirty in the morning. He's and got his flashers on, and he's in a car, and he's, he's like in a car, and he's 30, just jumped thirty to forty years old, right? Yeah, he's just yeah. jumping out, running them up to the doorsteps. Yep. you know, in the pitch dark. So somehow, See, the I young... think I innovated that because <laughs> <laughs> because uh, when I was a sophomore, uh, there was a junior or senior girl that really liked me, and so I kind of played her out a little bit and got it to the point where she would drive me around in her car to deliver the paper. This is when we delivered them after school, I think, except wow. for Sundays. It was early morning. I could see. And so she drove me around, but it was pure laziness. That I have to ride my bike. <laughs> Her name was Jill. I remember. That's great. My only time my dad would drive me around traditionally on Christmas Day, we'd go deliver the paper in his car. That's awesome. That was our Christmas Day tradition. Uh, do you feel like your dad played a part in your, your in your paper business success? I mean, did he did he mentor you at all during that time? You know, I don't think he did specifically, but I'm sure. Everything that happened. He suggested prior, some things. <laughs> yeah, made me think about those things, you know. And then he definitely mentored me when I went to work for him. I learned a lot. Going, he was the king of office supplies in Corvallis, Oregon. At the time, was the only office supply store. And so, um, you know, it was just a great experience. He was a you know, small business owner. Everybody loved him. So was his best friend. Was that your dad's big risk? Did he have other yes. businesses prior to that? He, well, he worked for a company, fairly successful at Evans Products in Portland, and moved to Corvallis to start his first business on his own and bought an office supply store, having never done office supplies, out of the blue, in a town he didn't know anybody in. Big so risk. It was a big risk. Unfortunately for him, it paid off. So I would, you know, he's... He's passed now, but I would love to have interviewed him and asked him, did he see little risks he took along the way that that didn't occur to him like a big risk, or did that occur like a big risk? Because, you know, without knowing what he took to lead up to it, it seems like a fairly sizable risk, mm -hmm. but it paid off for him. Well, in hearing what you just said, relating it back to that spark, one of the things you always hear people say is, when I was in my 20s, I didn't care about anybody and I just wanted to, to hustle. I had all these great ideas and I look back at, uh, I started in uh, doing mortgage advising in my er, uh, early 20s. Oh, you did? Okay. And I didn't care. I would call anybody, talk to anybody, take risks all the time. I didn't realize I was taking risks. I just was hungry and driven. And now that it seems like when you, when you get to a point in your career where you lose that. And so that I just kind of connected those two with the spark mm. and losing your ability to take risks as you get comfortable or you get older. Why my, are you laughing? Mine was actually the opposite because I started in my mid-20s and I had this, I was a very confident person. Like I interviewed well, I got the job, but I was, I was scared to death that I was going to talk to somebody. I'm brand new in mortgages. I'm going to talk to this guy that's already bought two houses. This guy knows way more than me. And so I was constantly afraid of 
everybody knows more than me. I, I just need to, I need to not do loans. I just need to keep studying until I know enough to, to have the confidence to go out. And so I was, I was terrified to talk to people, terrified. Hmm. And now it's, now it's different. You know, now I know, no, I'm the mortgage professional. I've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, if somebody happens to know something more than me than about mortgages, then wow, you're, you're, you're pretty versed in this. <laughs> so what, what's interesting to me about that is listening to both of you, you were bas- both basing your confidence on something different. Mm-hmm. You were basing your confidence on what? Knowledge or knowledge, lack thereof. Right? Yeah, absolutely. You were basing your confidence on knowledge, so when you didn't have it, you had no confidence. Now that you have it, you have confidence. What were you basing your confidence on? I don't know. Well, yours is less obvious, right? But you just didn't care, right? You were basing it on something, right? So you were just, just going to call people. Just getting business, it sounds like. Well, you know, I, I, uh, while I was going to college, I sold computers at Circuit City. And so I had uh, some really good basic sales training. And then I worked in a shark tank where everyone was out to eat each other, right? They would still. So, would you say you're basing your confidence on your phone ability, or your ability to communicate with people, or your ability to sell people, or something like it. that? Yeah. My, my ability. I, I wasn't scared of failing, and uh, I was kind of coming from a cutthroat environment, and so uh, I just I didn't care. I didn't care. Um, I'd get to the office early, stay late. We still do that, but uh, I just wanted. I was driven by the success. Right. I saw other people in my office that were doing really well, um, making a lot of money. And uh, I felt like I could be them. Like there was nothing special they were doing. And then now as I got older, that reversed for a long time, for many years until uh, in the last five years, I've gotten really into personal development. And it was the first sales mastery I went to. And that was the first time in a long time where I looked at these top producers in the country on the stage and said, they're no different than me. Right. So I don't, I don't know. To answer your question. Okay. Well, and I, th- the reason why it's interesting to me is I think we all base our confidence on things, but most of us don't know what it is. And so we're not conscious of what we're basing our confidence on. And so our confidence is there and then it eludes us and then it's there and it eludes us. And so, as I've started to pay more attention to confidence and study it, I think there's a real skill at mastering what you're basing it on. And I think you can base it on many things, and there are times when it'll work, and there are times when it won't. And your skill of being aware of what you're basing it on and deciding, will this work in this moment, or will this work in this moment, will have you stay confident. Because I I believe if you can stay in a confident state, you're more likely to take risks, you're more likely to take the second risk, the third iteration, the fourth iteration, the fifth iteration, whereas if you lose your confidence, you're more more likely to stop and think. And that's where thinking is not your friend, is most people who lose their confidence spend a lot of time thinking and a lot less time acting, and they're learning stalls. Because they're learning stalls, they don't get where they want to go, and their strategy stalls and things back up, and they become less interesting. They feel safe, but they aren't safe because they aren't progressing. And I'm getting anxiety about that just for this weekend, right? Because 
our goal is to recording this on Cinco de Mayo and to have it published post production everything by Monday. And we're about an hour into this. Uh, yeah, hour and ten. And I'm already listening. While I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about a half an hour ago and going, man, that was a really stupid comment to make about the Goodwill sticker on the book. And I'm starting <laughs> to do that, right? And I go, man, I wish I could edit that out. And I'm starting to second guess. And I'm starting to have that fear. And what I need to do is put this on the internet. Stop thinking about it. Once it's on the internet and it's published, then go back and think about, okay, what am I going to do different next time? That's awesome. That's right. So hearing yourself say all that, yeah. what do you think you just noticed around confidence, risk-taking? Uh, I think I caught myself. I caught myself slipping into that, oh. The thinking. Yeah, maybe this will be another one that we just learn from and we won't publish this one. And back to the accountability partners, I know myself really well and I have to have multiple accountability partners and I have to have tricks that I hold myself accountable. Like I set my voicemail every day and I put the date and time, I put the date on there so that um, the next day, if I don't set it and somebody calls, then I'm going to look like an idiot. So I, I, I do little tricks. And so just know, knowing that I have Ryan in this and that he's going to hold me accountable, I have to be surrounded by that. Otherwise, I will, I will not take the risks and I will let the fear overcome and I won't do it. That's great. Yeah. Compelling. Yes. Uh, Doug Mendenhall, uh, what do you do? Well, you know, one of the things, probably one of the biggest mistakes I was ever part of was a very big project where we were teaching an international sales team to close business. And it took 18 months. The whole sales team was in, involved. Um, they were bought in. They did what we said. They learned. They played the game exactly how we wanted to play them. We all believed in the training. We thought it was solid. We thought it was good. We thought it would work. Everybody went in this project committed, feeling like this was going to be great. It was going to help this company do even better, and they were already doing well. Training finished, and sales went down, which was not a popular <laughs> situation, <laughs> given that they just spent a lot of money having us teach the sales team how to close business, and to have sales go down was not popular and a lot of people and got how long of a time frame was this? 18 months and so what was interesting is the market didn't really change during that time so it was a perfect case study to show what we did absolutely did not work <laughs> and we were the cause if you will of the sales going down it was just a colossal fail yeah and i'll never forget it because human behavior was interesting at that point there were a lot of people involved in this project. Nobody wanted to talk about it. After it failed? After the failure. Everybody wanted to run and do something else and get on to something else. And most of the time, people wanted to go back and do something they were good at, kind of reclaim their ego. Like Within the consulting company or both companies? Both companies. Okay. Just people wanted to go back and do something they had success at so they could feel successful again because this was a failure for everybody. And everybody felt it and knew it was a bad failure. This wasn't just like a little one. It was a big one. Okay. But having grown up working for my dad, I wanted to learn because I, I was baffled. It ended and I still couldn't figure out why it didn't work. It didn't make sense to me. I was like, this should have worked. We all thought it would work. Everybody did what they were supposed to do. Why didn't it work? 
And I couldn't figure it out. It wasn't obvious. And I just sat and thought, and most people didn't want to talk about it. So I was like, shoot, I can't even bounce this off anybody because everybody's mm -hmm. running for the hills. And after about three months, something happened. I don't even remember what it was now, but it finally hit me. It was a flawed theory. Our theory was you could have people close business. And I think that's a bad notion. And, and here's why. My lesson learned out of that experience was you shouldn't sell anybody anything. And we were teaching people to sell. And most of the time, selling is... Let me pause you. Yeah. For those of you who are listening to this show and are in sales, I think this is the most powerful thing that you can do to transform the way you do with the way you do your sales. So I just I wanted to preference that this is huge. So if you're if you're driving, pull over, take out your notepad, and write <laughs> this down. Well, the, the the thought occurred that selling is repelling, and you see it all the time. Somebody comes on too strong, you back up, and you want to get away. So here we were taking a very successful sales force and teaching them to be more salesy, right? Close harder which actually repelled clients and their sales went down. And it occurred to me what we should have been teaching them is subtle but very different is we should have been teaching them to be bought. People love to buy, but they love to buy what they want to buy. And we were teaching them to sell, which automatically had people, even if they wanted to buy, to become a little more skeptical and think, huh, maybe I shouldn't want this. This guy's really coming on strong. And if we taught them to be bought, people would probably have come in easier, faster, quicker, and been like, oh my God, that's great. And so out of that moment, for me, came the notion of the word compelling. And so being bought at a high level is if you're compelling, people want to buy it. And so compelling is to an audience. This group is compelled to do this because they really want that. And the more compelling it is, the more they'll beat your doors down to get it. The less compelling it is, the more they'll hem in their haw and they'll think about it. Right. And so I think in the marketing space, the goal is to become super compelling, and then you won't have to spend so much time and energy marketing. If your message and if your service and if your product is super compelling, marketing becomes a lot easier. And I think a lot of times that's missed in the world, and people try to sell the heck out of something that's not compelling, and it's very difficult, and it's just as difficult tomorrow as it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they can make it more compelling gets easier. Every day that it gets more compelling, it's easier, more people want to buy it, more people want it. And that was, that was the idea, and, then, and that was in the 90s, and I've just carried that theme, whatever I've been involved with, be compelling. Take risks, be compelling, stay confident so that you stay in the game of taking risks, and be compelling. And it's always worked out. I've never seen it fail in big business, small business, little business. Those three concepts, I think, are the three most important things that I, I've seen work. Well, in, in the last few years when I've tried to implement this Be Compelling in a lot of aspects of what I do, uh, it, a lot of times the, th the thing you're selling, whether it be yourself or, or your product, is compelling on its own, but you don't know how to, to, ex to explain that it's compelling, right? Uh, I just bought a new truck, mm -hmm. and uh, I shopped about 20 different dealerships in the entire Northwest, and it kind of became fun, right, and uh, help not sell, and I, c I could not get this out of my mind uh, that people want to buy, they don't want to be sold, and here I'm buying something that I've wanted for a long time, 
I know more about it than anybody I'm talking to, and everyone's trying to close me. Just get out of the way and let this truck be compelling. And so uh, it's been really helpful. And what you said at our last sales rally, too, is um, at every level of the conversation, be compelling. So I started off talking about compelling by saying, what do you do? I was trying to provoke you to do the whole elevator speech thing. And I think a lot of people come up with a really compelling elevator speech. I do X, Y, Z, right? And then they don't think about the next sentence and the next phone call and the next conversation, right? So it's kind of like your elevator speech is your compelling 101. And then what about that next level? And then one thing that I think maybe since you've been thinking about compelling since the 90s is you don't really have to try to be compelling. You're just a compelling person. Whether I run into you at an In-N-Out Burger at, a, at one of our events and I talk to you for a few minutes, every time I talk to you, you always come across compelling. Mm, it's not you. like it's like it's natural, right? It's not like you sat down and thought for a half an hour, wrote all these notes on what I'm going to say to Cody to make him think I'm compelling, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, well, I'm curious yeah. with your story on the trucks, out of the 20 people that you talked to, how many of them were selling you? All of them. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Here they are trying to be successful. And they were actually probably turning you off more than they were turning you on. So why do you think I decided to go with the dealer I did? I would guess that you went with the dealer you did because there was not... It probably wasn't the salesperson you were dealing with. It was price. Yeah. Okay. It was all price. Gotcha. So none of them were compelling. One of uh, none of them were compelling. They're all trying to close me. What can I do to get you up here today? That whole nonsense, right? Yep. And so I went to the, I went to the person that had the lowest price, okay. and then I took that person and I pitted them against the other twenty people, and then who can get back to me the fastest with the best price? I was driving Ryan nuts talking to him about it for a week. Uh, True story. Where if <laughs> if somebody would have said, wow, you really want this feature of this truck. You really want a console. Let me tell you all about the console. I have one too. And they were compelling. I probably wouldn't have spent all week going after an extra $800 in savings. That's great. And it doesn't surprise me. And I think that, and these are professionally trained car salespeople. And I see it all the time in the world as people, you know, going to Best Buy, selling you, going to standard appliance, TV and appliances, selling you. And they've trained the consumer to not want to talk to them, which yeah. is opposite what they really would want to have happen. I've gotten really good at the car dealership stare down when you first get out of your car, when you're pulling the parking lot and there's a line of them standing there, which always blew my mind. Right, going back to being aggressive in your early twenties, if I was, I would love to be able to be a car dealer for a week. Right, see how well I could do, be a car salesman. But they're all standing there, all shoulder to shoulder, and you know that it's like you know you're pulling, and they're like, oh, I wonder who's up next. Right, where I'd be out researching the cars, sitting in the cars. You know, you want to sell a car, why don't you sit in the car while people pull up? They're just different ideas. But I got really good at that stare where I could tell these I could tell people that I haven't talked to them, don't talk to me. Just stay away. Yeah. Um, and I actually used, uh, I think it was one of your lines with, with the dealer I went up going to going with because I was telling her about how big of a jerk this other guy was. And I, you know, he's just trying to close me, trying to get me in the dealership 
I said, uh, people want to buy, they don't want to be sold. So I totally stole that from you. And I was thinking... What'd she, she say? Well, I was thinking, she's going to think I'm a genius, and she's going to take this, and she went right over her head. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, oh, that's really interesting. So here's the final number. Yeah. How can I get you in here? Yeah, how can I get <laughs> you in you here close. Yeah. <laughs> What's yeah. it going to take? That's yeah. funny. And, and so, you know, I'm talking with the manager, and they wanted me, so I put a deposit down on this truck, and the truck was, wasn't there yet. It was in route. And uh, so I thought I had bought that truck. Well, you put a deposit down on the truck. Nobody else can buy it from you. But in order for it to count as a sale for the dealership, you have to drop it, like take it down where you're officially bought it. You maybe haven't given them money yet, but you sign a contract saying that's the truck I'm going to buy, and then that counts towards their sales. So this uh, car dealer wasn't very good, and she was so so anxious to get me to sell that she didn't realize that the delivery day of this truck was after the end of the month. And if we don't drop it during this month, then all your rebates and stuff expire, and you're up to the new rebates, when maybe they're better or worse the next month. And so I go, well, I'm not going to do that because it's seven hours away. i got to drive out there. What if I get out there and don't like it? You know, what if I want a different truck or a different color? So she gets the manager on the phone, and he goes, what do I have to do to get you to drop this today? I said, take another $1,000 off. And he goes, done. But he didn't have to do that. You know, he didn't have to give me further discounts to get to close me. But it was just, if he, that's the game you want to play, then let's play it. Yeah. So now that's done, and I'm so excited to go pick up my truck and not have to worry about. You know, one thing we use a lot in our industry I do. I use this a lot. I think Ryan, I've heard Ryan use it too, is uh, buying a house is a lot like childbirth. And once you're in, you'll forget about this miserable process you're going through. <laughs> like, what a horrible thing to use, but it's very true. And that's how I feel about this. Uh, I don't think I've ever said that. You've never said that? <laughs> not, not in those terms. I, I use that a lot. <laughs> uh, but, and, and then I always, when I call to do my thank you a few days later, they always laugh and they say, oh, yeah, I forgot all about it. It's just like childbirth. But... Uh, how are we doing on time, Ryan? Uh, hour and 25. So first official guest on the hunt for success. Uh, what's your feedback? What do you think? What do you like about our venue? Well, the venue is amazing. This place is incredible. Does it fit the title? The I think so, success? yeah. And I think it's a very relaxed process. I think uh, very enjoyable. I hope uh, listeners get out of it a lot. And it's a good, good listen for people. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? I don't, um, but mm, yeah, I'm I'm more you will more intrigued. Yeah, I'm more intrigued now. Yeah. Well, it's it's the uh, it's the new thing, and uh, I've gotten a lot out of podcasts. And the way I got into podcasts, a lot of it's because Ryan. But uh, I said about five years ago, I got really into personal development. Our regional vice president of our company pushed been pushing me to go to this sales mastery seminar every year he brings everyone back and they tell their takeaways and they make you feel uh lazy for not going and i just wasn't into it wasn't into the rah-rah and uh so finally i went and totally changed my perspective of personal development um and i came back and i was on fire for about five months and then i was starting to lose that drive and then we had our company's sales rally where we had motivational speakers so i got way into it and 
last year, it was either last year or the year before, we bought the DVD, Ryan and I did, from the Sales Mastery. And because we said we, we, it's going to be at least six months before we go to another one of these, so let's buy the DVD. And every Wednesday, we would, Ryan and I both bring our lunch to the office. Oh, we would uh, warm up our lunch and put on one of the speakers. We'd rewatch it. We called it Midweek Motivator. Yeah, Midweek Motivator. And if you're listening to this podcast, I challenge you to wait a week or two, write down what you took away, be compelling, paper boy, then come back and listen to it again. And I bet you, you'll have one or two takeaways that were completely different. That was what we experienced by watching these videos mm. over and over again. And we watched five or six times. Yeah, we'd watch the same speaker because we'd have new guests come in. We would have a realtor come in or an insurance person and eat their lunch. We just said, we just want an hour of your time. Get some motivation, you know, get over that midweek hump. Come in, listen to 45 minutes of a speaker. And so some of the speakers, we literally heard seven, eight times. And every single time I heard something new that I hadn't heard the previous time. And And I could, out of the exact same speech, and I could relate it to something that was actively going on awesome. in my life. And that's really interesting as well. I, I, um, there's this great author out there named Leo Biscaglia. Yep. You know, so Leo Biscaglia, the quick story on him, he went to the University of Southern California and said, I want to teach love. And everybody kind of laughed at him. He said, love, you don't teach love at the university level. Nobody else teaches love at the university level. And to my knowledge, nobody ever does but USC did. They took a risk and they said, okay, go ahead. But here's the rules, you know, and if it doesn't work out like this, we're canning it, basically. Well, not too long after he started, he was the most popular class at University of Southern California. People started attending the university because of his class. He taught it under an oak tree. And it was everybody's favorite class. And people knew about it. People went to the school for it. Amazing success story. He's also an author. He's since passed, but I remember in college, I bought his books, I read them, and I would highlight. And I, I remember, and so this would have been in the 80s, I highlighted in yellow. It was kind of the standard highlighter color. But since I was the son of the office supply king, I knew there were highlighters in blue and pink and orange and green. And so every five years, I would reread the same book. And what was interesting is I would highlight different things in the book with you know I'd all, every five years I'd use a different color because something else hit me more than it did the time before and it was the same book and so very similar yeah just different different things going on in your life just a different place so you get those different takeaways yeah and and so we would do this every Wednesday and it was amazing too because if you look at our production on the first half, or not our productivity on productivity on the first half of Wednesday compared to the second half of Wednesday, it was day and night. Oh, that's great. And it wasn't like we were consciously losing our productivity, but you would notice after, you know, you couldn't wait to turn the video off and go back to work. Well, yeah, you had a page full of notes, and you were like, just ideas were just popping left and right, and you're like, I, I can't wait to get this video done so I can get back in my office and knock this out of the park. Like I got four hours left in my day. There's only so many speakers on this DVD. So then we would start uh, looking for different material. And uh, Jocko was at one of the uh, 
the sales mastery and we would watch his over and over again and then he started a podcast so we would listen to that and he would put like 10 minute little motivational videos up hold on hold on Jocko if you're listening we want you as a guest we got to have you as a guest here in Vancouver Washington keep going uh thanks for that plug because we do want you Jocko we do uh own it own Own it, it Jocko own it so we started listening to podcasts, and then the midweek motivators kind of fizzled out. We don't do it too often anymore, but we are both constantly listening to podcasts all day. Just um, in the background. Just in the background. Well, here's what I was going to say about what you got something different out of each time. There's, you know, this notion, I think, that we're taught practice makes perfect, and I've never really bought into that notion. I've always bought into the notion that practice makes permanent. And so here you are listening to your weekly video, the same one over and over again. And I, this is my theory. I'm going to test it out and see if you guys think this is along the lines. But the first time you listen to it, you get this out of it. You go run with that. You practice it. It's now become somewhat permanent in your curriculum. So you don't see it as much the next time because you find something else. And then you get the opportunity to practice. It's a lot like with me reading Leo Biscay's book, the first five years I highlighted this, practiced that, it became permanent. So I didn't really notice as much the next time I read, but I noticed this because I hadn't learned that or embedded that or made that permanent. And so I think there's this idea that we can practice something long enough to where it's permanent and then we don't see it as much anymore because it's now in us and then we look and see something different. Are we still good on our video? That one you shut down, I think that was that movie. Oh, this one's still rolling. Okay. So. Well, you're technically the only one that anybody can see right now. No. Oh, I think oh, wait, no. no I am. You, <laughs> <laughs> you want to switch seats? <laughs> uh, well, and you only have so much capacity. You know, I get through, I get to about 9.30 on the first day of sales mastery, and I want to say, okay, time Pause. out. Yeah, yeah, can I go back? And, it's been 45 minutes. Yeah. I, need to, I need to go digest some of this already. But, uh, but the podcasts are great. They're great because you don't have to listen in depth, you can just kind of have it on in the background. It's not distracting, um, and uh, we listen to a lot of them. Uh, Joe Rogan uh, was the—that was actually what got us started. Is we watch a lot of Joe Rogan, and and uh, uh, I had this great idea. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna ask Joe Rogan to be my first guest, right? He's you know Joe Rogan, he's huge. And so Ryan—that was one of the things Ryan rolled me out in front of my in front of all of our coworkers—is Cody's too scared to to uh, invite Joe Rogan. So we came here and we did a little video and got it posted because he was going to be in town for a comedy show. We never heard back, but if I wouldn't have done that, I don't know that we would have ever been doing this podcast. Wow. Yeah. Because I knew that the chance of succeeding was like one-tenth of one percent, but... You got Joe Rogan in spirit. You got Joe Rogan in spirit, but... It was the go for no. Like, we knew it was... It was like 99.9% chance it was going to be a no. And you so know, I was like, what do you have to lose? And, and you, you asked me earlier, where did my confidence come from? It's got nothing to lose when I was early in my career. Now, if I go out and do something stupid and polarize half my client base, I have a lot to lose. I have a database right. to lose. I have a reputation to lose. I'll bet you anything if you ask Joe Rogan five times, the fifth time he'll say yes. Dude, it's been once. Well, we hit him up and then his manager. Let me give you a story. So when I started my company, 
I was nobody. Nobody had heard of me. I'd never started a company before. And once we were going for our second round of funding, we had Bob Crandall as the chairman of our board. Bob Crandall was the CEO and chairman of American Airlines, chairman of the board of American Express, chairman of Halliburton Oil. Pretty big time. Pretty big time. <laughs> and I always got the question, how in the heck did you get Bob Crandall to be chairman of your board? And people were just like, what, you know, do you know his aunt? Do you, are you connected to his sister? You know, what's the scoop? They thought there was some magic thing. And I, I was just like, I called him. They're, what do you mean? You, you, what do you mean you called him? And I said, I, I called him. They're like, you just called him? Just looked up his name in the white paper. And I said, I called him. <laughs> yeah. And what I had done was I'd done some research and found out that he was intrigued with technology and he was an innovator. And so I just appealed to him on what we were doing. I thought it was innovative. I thought it was a new technology. It was disruptive. It could change things. And it intrigued him. He wanted to more. more. He didn't say yes right away. We probably were on our fifth call by the time he said, yes, I'll be chairman of your board. But it's just such a lesson learned is people think things are so magic. And I'll bet you anything, your first iteration was you sent him a video. I'll bet you anything. There's definitely a strategy to get, Joe, get John Rogan on this call. And if you do it five times, you'll do it. And I'll, uh, one more other quick story. A, a buddy of mine, we graduated college within the same time. And he was in marketing. He wanted to work for Wyden and Kennedy one of the top ad agencies in the world. And they told him no. And he really wanted to work for him, and he tried again, and they told him no. But he really wanted to work for him, and he tried again, they said no. Finally, he went out and bought a full-size door at the hardware store, wrote on it, I'm going to keep knocking on your door till you hire me, FedExed it to him, and they hired him. It's like the Rudy story. Persistence pays off. There's always a strategy for everything, and your first time, you're probably not going to get it, but... You will eventually figure it out. Is that a ch- is that a challenge? Yes. Uh, what's what 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 what's your what's your new what's your new book going to be called again? Risk takers versus risk talkers. And and how how far into that are you? Well, I've got about ten years worth of research. Okay. So I've got a lot of it in in my head, and I'm just waiting for the time where I can just sit down, write it all out, and put it into a way to digest it. It's Sounds like you just need to take that risk and start putting it on paper, Doug. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is that a challenge? <laughs> That's a challenge, Doug. <laughs> I want to read your book. Because I've actually, I've, I've gotten through the start of Spark, and the first chapter uh, is on purpose, and it's amazing. Uh, actually, today on Facebook, <clears throat> your, uh, your, your intro uh, to the book had an awesome quote. Um, and I'm on the spot now, um, but it talked about uh, being your best when you come to breakfast, and you know how you how you approach your day and whatnot. Um, but the start of the book is I'm I'm already hooked, and I I can't Good. wait to awesome I, I can't wait to get through all ten chapters. And that was actually going to be one of my questions. Is just you kind of answered it, but how did you come up with the topics? Or the you know the key word did, for each chapter. Did you have like a mentor helping you write this book, or did you have any background? No, <laughs> I had never written a book. I actually i I had two editors, you know, with each different perspective, help me write it. And um, you know, I just i 
ran it by lots of people and it, what the early on what I get a lot of feedback was when I talk to you I totally get it but when I read your book I don't get it and so it took a lot of editing to try mm -hmm. to capture because I felt like I'd been given this great gift talking to all these people and I knew it in me and it was really hard to take all of that years of research well, and yeah, put it traveling on the, paper the world talking to 600 people and have it come out. And, and that, that was hard for me was to figure out how to get it to come out on the paper. And I would do it differently now, having done it once. You know? Like the process? Yes. So your part, part of it in chapter one talks about you, you did trials, little experiments as you're walking down the street, yep. whether it just be eye contact, a smile, or good morning, how yes. are you? Yep. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, this is where Spark started, was I was in New York just as a tourist, and I was in between meetings. I was actually there to raise money for our company. And so in between the meetings, I had time, and I was always interested in people. So I walked down one street, and this would have been pre-9-11. And New York was not a particularly happy place. Coming from Portland, Oregon, which is pretty happy, I was struck by how miserable people looked on the streets. And I was like, wow, it is not just a very busy hustle and bustle. It's not the happiest looking place I've ever been to. So I thought, I'm going to play with this. So I walked down one street and I'd say, hi, good morning. And most people would not say hi. And those that looked at me were scared. Like, why is this guy <laughs> saying hi? What does he want? I can't wait to get away from him. I was like, wow, this is different than Portland. Most people there say hi back and smile back. So they thought I wanted something from them. So the next street, I thought, okay, I'm not going to say hi. I'm just going to smile. And not a completely different reaction. Most people were like, why is he smiling at me? What's he want? Get away from me. It's like, this is interesting. So it hit me on that trip. I was like, why? What happened? I'm not sure this is the way we're supposed to live life. I'm not sure this is the way we want to live life. And wouldn't it be great if when people come to Portland, Oregon, they go, wow, that is such a happy city. And I was like, wouldn't it be great if Portland was the sparkiest city in the world? And people came there and go, I just love going there. There's something about that place. People are happy. They love life. And everything's going great. You know, it's funny you say that. You come from a small town. Yep. Right? Corvallis is not a large town. And uh, for many years, we would go to me and my friends would go to North Dakota to go on pheasant hunt, hunts every year, every fall. And the first time I went, I was in a town called New England, North Dakota, which um, the whole entire city was probably three blocks by three blocks. And that was a large city. The next closest town was 30 miles away. And uh, um, I'm trying to remember the name, Bowman. North Dakota. And so I was uh, by myself driving up to meet uh, one of my other friends for breakfast before we went hunting. And I'm driving around trying to find this restaurant that was inside of a bowling alley. I'm driving up and down the street and there's people out, you know, walking around and they're all looking at me and, and waving like this. And I'm like, what? So I drive by somebody else and they go like that. So finally I pull my truck over because I thought maybe I left my hunting boots on the, on the top of the truck or something was wrong. And so I got out, nothing was wrong. And then so I drove back down. I go, you know, these people are just waving hi. They're just waving to me hi, like, because it's such a small town. And that's just how it is there. And I'm like, this is awesome. 
And I got really used to being there. I mean, you walk into the bar, and now we go, we don't plan where we're going to hunt. What we do is we go, and we know a couple good bars where you walk in, and you just start being friends with people because that's all they want. They just want people to talk to, right, somebody different to talk to. So we'd go in, and within a couple hours, we'd have four or five invitations to go out hunting that day. Wow. And then you come back. And you go over that great divide, right? And you come back down and you reach right maybe Tri-Cities area. And as you get closer to the big cities, people's driving changes. And you don't realize it when you're in it every day. But everything changes rapidly the closer you get to the city. So that's really interesting. Now, my sister went to Johns Hopkins and University of Pennsylvania. So she lived in Baltimore and Philadelphia. And now she lives in Seattle. And she says that the people in the East Coast are more friendly than the people in Seattle. But it's a different type of friendly. There's a sense of urgency. They're moving. They're constantly going. So it can be perceived as being rude. But they'll always open the door for her. And the people are, it's a different type of friendly where it's more true caring than a fake, you know, smile. But just interesting. Well, and I would say going back to New York now, post 9-11... It's a much happier city, ironically. And more pride, more um, unity. Yeah. It's, it's something as horrible as that event was, it, something positive came out of it. Hmm. Uh, would you say our first podcast, was it compelling? I, I think so. I liked it. It was Good. fun. It's fun to be here. Well, uh, thanks a lot for taking a risk. And accepting my invitation, not knowing what you were walking into to, to be on our podcast. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks for having uh, me. Spark, available on Amazon uh, from, this, from the uh, writer. Right? The Lisa one from the author. the author says Spark Book is the uh, seller. Spark Book. And it says something about the author, author's copy or something like that. Author. There's a lot, of, a lot of other people selling it, but the one from direct from the author is Spark Book. Spark Book. And the new book... Doesn't have a date yet? No date yet. It's all germinating. Research being done to come, come soon. Well, when you, when you get to that point, will you come back on the yes. podcast? Yes. Yes. All right. Awesome. And that point, John Rogan will be saying, I hope I can have Ryan and Cody on my podcast. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. We won't let you send the invite because it's Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan will say that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there will be a John Rogan. <laughs> there might be. <laughs> I told uh, you I don't watch many podcasts. All right, we'll do, we will do this. We'll do a follow-up, maybe a 10 or 15-minute follow-up in a few months when we've done five invites to Joe Rogan, and we'll bring it back on maybe just over the phone or something. We'll do a quick Love update it. podcast. Love it. Sounds good. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Till next time. All right. <laughs>